Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I am very pleased to welcome back to this program for the infinite side of midnight. Dr. Sky, uh, his Christian name is Steve Cates. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer who talks about astronomy, space, and more. Also, a terrific podcaster where he hosts the Dr. Sky Experience, which you could listen to at Red Apple Podcast Network. Dot com. Steve, I can't believe it's been two weeks already. It's great to talk to you. Well, it's great to talk to you, Frank. Thank you for the nice compliment. But I hope you had a great vacation. Uh, glad and welcome back to you and uh, hope everything's going well for you and your family. Thank you. I, I did indeed. And uh, it's but there's nothing like when you get to do this for a living beyond the radio for a living. It's almost like every day is a vacation, right. you know? Absolutely, my friend. Absolutely. Uh, Good to be back on the infinite side as we journey with uh, so many Wonderful things, Frank, but I'm hoping in this edition we might have time to talk about something that's pretty big that people will be able to hopefully see or have been watching. This is the upcoming Perseid Meteor Show. Well, big, that, big news to report there. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, that you mentioned that first because that is very much on my mind, and I know a lot of people are hoping to, uh, to get a glimpse of this. This is uh, pretty big this week. Give us the basics. Yes. Uh, when is it coming how can we see it? Why is this happening now? What's, what is the big deal about this, the Perseid meteor shower? Well, Frank, one of the largest comets that orbits around the sun is a comet called Swift-Tuttle. The nucleus of this comet, remember, this is all leftover material from the creation of the solar system billions of years ago. So the comet namesake, where all these particles come from, maybe most of them are the size of a cereal that I don't eat often, like grape nuts, Literally, they're about the size of you, you know, poured some of that grape nut cereal in your hand. It's the outgassing material from a comet that's about 26 kilometers in diameter, the nucleus. And every August, we move into the stream of particles that come out of the tail end of the comet like a tailpipe or like a sandblaster to be more you know, accurate. So this shower started in its uh, slow intensity, starting at the mid-period of July. But it's going to peak over the weekend. And this is good for everybody listening to this particular edition here of the Alvi Infinite Side of Midnight. Sky watchers, wherever you're listening right now, if you have clear skies, just simply look to the northeast sky and just be patient because you hopefully will get to see upwards city dwellers a lot less, but still in the game. In the dark skies, we'll hopefully be able to see, removed from lights, maybe 50 or more meteors an hour, and that could be conservative. But the meteor shower actually peaks on the night of Saturday the 12th into the morning of the 13th. But it has a long history, Frank, and to keep it short and sweet, it's one of the best meteor showers of the year. Why? Not only because of the incidence and higher numbers of you know, particles, but it's usually a time, like many people are in a warmer climate, God help us, like Phoenix, the epicenter <laughs> of hell here, but in other locations, it's obviously a great time with family vacations like yourself. And many other people. So this is a good time of year to look. But the interesting thing, being brief, is that this particular shower literally peaks up very quickly. And I've observed this for about 40 years, and I'm sure listeners out there also have that same lineage of time. But it's a very fickle thing because we talk about showers, but we always want to be honest. So many in the media, and I'm not blaming them, 
we read so many articles on the internet about, oh, this asteroid's coming and it's the size of the Eiffel Tower or the big giant building or this, you know, Washington Monument, but it's still 2 million miles away. But in this case, these meteor showers are very fickle because comets, an astronomer and comet discoverer David Levy described comets like cats. They both have tails and they do exactly what they want. But in this case, going back to comets, they're the source of these meteors. They can be really impressive. And I just hope that uh, people throughout this uh, edition have a chance to look. You know, you could see it right now if you have clear skies with some patience. But it's one of those showers, Frank, that's been observed by the Chinese as early as around the over year one, around 34 A.D. And it's actually, uh, you know, it's been around for a long time. But the parent comet, briefly, Swift-Tuttle is one of the objects that passes closest to the Earth in all time on a regular basis. And that comet is not going to hit us anytime soon, but some project that in the distant future, maybe hundreds of, maybe even thousands of years, could be an impactor to the Earth. But I don't necessarily buy into that equation because most don't believe it'll happen. It's just a beautiful thing to look at. A couple of things. One, let me give our phone number in case people have questions throughout the hour. They can call in and ask at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. One of my questions for you was actually going to be, what does a meteor shower look like if people are looking up at the night sky and wondering if they're seeing them? But as I was poised to ask you that question, I was Googling meteor shower in the hopes that it would mm-hmm. uh, pick up, uh, you know, a bunch of Google images of, of famous meteor showers. And sure. Google did something really neat. And I don't know if you know about this, but if you mm-hmm. type the words meteor shower, and I just discovered this literally 45 seconds ago, if you type the words meteor shower into Google and hit enter, then your whole screen for half a second becomes a meteor shower really neat um wow. yeah i had no idea so it's one of the many things people wonder why google's taking over the world it's cool tricks like that uh but um wow. just to clarify though i know you said saturday mm-hmm. is going to be the best day for meteor shower viewing but there sure. is a chance that people could see this even before that absolutely and i'm saying right now if anybody is listening obviously many people all over the world if you're in dark skies look to the northeast sky more specific The radiant of this meteor shower is from a constellation called Perseus from mythology, thus the namesake Perseus. But right, if those more advanced observers, you'll see the constellation shape. It looks like a cone of stars that's the head of Perseus. You know, he's the slayer of Medusa in that great mythological story. But right there is the radiant. So if you're looking in the northeast sky, remember, the sky rises as we look into the sky. It moves 15 degrees an hour. So if you were to look to the northeast and you see maybe one star there, if you put your thumb on that star, just spread your thumb and index finger out, and the sky will move in an hour, that star should be approximately where your index finger is. But the earlier you can look, usually the best time, I mean, just to be totally fair with everybody on this, they're very fickle events. They could be none. And I've been accused in some rather uh, nasty emails over the years (laughs) of saying, you told us that there's going to be a shower well, I can tell you there's rain showers, and we need them out here in Arizona. But as far as a meteor shower, just look to the northeast sky. So right now, as we're looking across this vast audience here of this radio show, you're able to see if you just peel your eyes, get in the lawn chair if you have clear skies. Unobstructed views are best if you have trees and buildings. Obviously, that's going to hamper it. But, Frank, something really cool. During the early hours of these meteor showers, we get what's called earth grazers. What are those? They're objects that are a little bit larger than that 
you know, tiny little pebble-sized material that I talked about, like a grape nut cereal if you held it in your hand. These earth razors can actually take place earlier than, say, after midnight to sunrise. That's usually the best time to look. But I've seen these earth grazers, meaning they're coming across what they call tangentially. And what that means is literally they're just grazing the top of the atmosphere of the Earth. And some of these are as bright as the planet Venus. And Perseids are known to have some impressive tails behind them, or hmm. as we call them, celestial contrails. So these objects, going to look this, they're traveling 133,000 miles an hour. And they're, I, the, the word incorrect would be incinerating. It's actually more complicated, but... Hey, let's call them shooting stars for those, obviously, that have never seen one. But we know they're not stars. It's debris. But when you see one of these, this is incredible. So these earth grazers could start off as soon as the constellation Perseus starts to rise. Let's say it's on the horizon. And that may be around 10 or 11 o'clock in the evening if you're that much of a, you know enthusiast in this. But for everybody who's busy on a schedule, the best time, in Dr. Sky's opinion, would be from the hours of about 3 a.m. till sunrise. And I remember being back in Hackensack, New Jersey. Of course, I'm a native of that great area, New York, New Jersey, of course, as we've talked about. I remember back in like 1970 when we were kids, we would sit out, and it's so ridiculous. We had big sheets of plywood, and we faced different directions. We took this serious. We had guys out there, friends, counting as many meteors as they saw in each direction. But, Frank, we saw these great bolides, as we call them, or great fireballs coming out of the sky. So you never know. But in closing the Perseids, here's something if you want to project into the future and say, eh, I'm not going to bother this year. You know, I'm busy. The moon's not going to be out. That's what makes this a really good one. When a full moon is out, you don't get to see many. But how about this, folks? And Frank, this is interesting. A great Perseid shower could occur, astronomers predict, around August 12th of 2028, when the Earth will pass within 37,000 miles of one of the dust tails that came out of this comet in the year 1479. Now, that's a lot to swallow. So remember, it's like big filaments of material, like a swarm, let's say, of bees. They're all not concentrated in one area. They're obviously dispersed by different, you know, whatever reason. There's more here, there's more there. But the bottom line is there's been many, many of these fireball sightings since the mid-part of July, and I tell you, if you have clear skies, we'd love to talk about the results from uh, callers and see just what they got to see. Absolutely. Your iPhone or your regular phone can take some interesting images if you got it at the right time, just as if you took a shot of lightning. It's amazing. Absolutely. And uh, if people do get some interesting video or images, if they want to share them in our Facebook group, I'm yeah. sure a lot of folks would be interested in seeing them. They could go on to Facebook and just type in uh, Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, radio, fans and haters. These shooting, st I know it's debris, not stars, but these shooting stars-like right. objects that people mm -hmm. will see with the, as part of this meteor shower. How large are these actual objects? Well, as I mentioned before, the average size is if you took grape nut cereal, and I think the younger generation probably doesn't know what that is, and I don't really eat it anyway. But if you just, the best comparison would be pebble that you see. Like if you ride along the highway and you got out and you saw these little tiny rocks a few millimeters in diameter, that's the average size. And what they do is they light up because they're traveling at such an incredible, you know, incredible speed. Like we mentioned, 133,000 miles per hour. It's almost like you're sitting in the Millennium Falcon when they go to hyperspace. Right. This whole area in the sky, if you watch it over a period, it's called a radiant. And you'll notice that there's a bunch of material coming out of that one region, which is the reason for Perseid meteors. 
But a lot of people say, well, don't stare at the radiant because meteors are flying in all different directions. So to me, it's one of the coolest things you can do. You get out in the lawn chair, friends, family, or whatever, even by yourself, and just look in all directions. An adult beverage doesn't hurt. You know, you're out there having some fun. And it can turn into, for kids too, great thing, without the adult beverages. But it turns out to be an experience that, you know, there's so many families that plan camping trips right around this. But this year, Frank, in summary, the moon is not going to be out at all in the sense of ruining the skies. It'll be a tiny little thin crescent in the morning sky. So if you have clear skies, no, you know, monsoon weather like we have here, or no cloud banks or no trees and obstructions, find the darkest place you can. And even city dwellers, I've heard reports over the years of people in Central Park. Oh, wow, I saw a couple. So the whole point is it could be a very good show. And you mentioned that you used to get the plywood and lie on the grass and look upward. Is that a, I guess that means that you don't need binoculars or a telescope for this. You could see this with the naked eye. Absolutely. It's one of the best things you can do with your two natural eyes. And, you know, if we have good eye health, the point is, if you wear glasses, just out there is a great way to do it with the naked eye. And what could help if you had a pair of binoculars, the coolest thing is I've seen these meteor trails that look like contrails. They'll ionize. That's the technical term. And if you catch a glimmer of a glimpse of those in a pair of binoculars, they only they look like a, a strand of spaghetti, like a tube wow. for a few seconds. And that's amazing material flying. Imagine that speed, 133,000 miles an hour for little tiny pebbles and maybe some even larger chunks, maybe the size of a fist. And that would sure light up the night. It's amazing. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Uh, 800-848-9222 if people have questions. Let me begin with Paul in Manhattan. Paul, you're on with Dr. Sky. Hi, Frank. Hi, Dr. Sky. I have a quick question. Good morning. I hope, How are you? I hope maybe you can help me out with this. Are you familiar with either an astronomical term or maybe a meteorological term for um, when the moon at night is shining through the clouds? The closest thing I think of is moonshine, but that doesn't include the clouds. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Kind of. I mean, I'm always honest here. If I don't know, I'll just push the no button. But here we go. There's a, there's a phenomenon in the sky when you're seeing the moon shine through the clouds. It's called a corona. And what it is, it's like iridescence. And I've seen this many, many times. I'm sure many people listening, maybe that's what you've seen. Yes. This iridescence is like moisture in the atmosphere. The clouds, obviously, moisture. What you'll see is this kind of weird-looking thing, almost like a, not quite a a rainbow, but you'll see colors, like a reddish, bluish tinge. Now, that could be what we're talking about, but we call them a corona in the sky. And there's also a strange phenomenon, Paul, which actually people see a lot more with the sun, They'll see these two objects to the left and right of the sun. They're always at 20-some degrees away from the sun. They're called sun dogs. And if you get a high level of clouds, usually seen in the winter months, you know, when ice clouds are coming up in the sky, you'll see what's called the, the moon dogs, which is crazy. But I would go more on a corona, that color effect that you see with light from the moon through the clouds. 
Okay, it's close enough. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. We're going to continue you. with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Dr. Sky is here. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover with respect to SpaceX. There's some other interesting things in the night sky that you could see. And uh, we had that recent round of uh, UFO hearings. I'll get uh, Dr. Sky to comment on that and a whole lot more. This is The Other Side of Midnight. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Stars go blue Dancing where the evening fell Dancing in your water shoes And a wedding gown Dancing out on Seventh Street Dancing through the When the stars go blue, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I am superstar Frank Morano, joined for the hour in this The Infinite Side of Midnight by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you're interested in what we're talking about, you can check out the Dr. Sky Experience. You can search that on any podcast app, or you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and just search the Dr. Sky Experience. A lot of in-depth discussion on there that uh, that you really won't want to miss. 800-848-9222 if you have a question. I see folks queuing up. We'll get to you in a moment. Steve, uh, besides the meteor shower, which seems to be the main event, there's a lot of other interesting things visible in the night sky, including some of our neighboring planets this month, isn't there? Absolutely, Frank. And we have one that we have a story about, too, to attach to it. It's the planet Mercury, the closest planet to the sun, the smallest of the major planets of the solar system, the smallest of the eight. Simply people can look into the northwest sky after sunset. It'll be farthest away from the sun. It happens a few times a year in the evening sky, particularly. It's from 27 degrees away from the setting sun on the 10th. And you can still see it. If you may, some city dwellers and some people in the country may need a pair of binoculars if your eyes are not that keen. But what makes this interesting is this planet is only 36 million miles away from the sun. And we've had a lot of different stories coming about you know, how we've discovered things on this planet. A very difficult planet to get to because normally you don't fire your rocket and just head directly down the freeway in space and go directly to Mercury. You do the thing called gravity assist. And there's a spacecraft that we can just mention here, which we're very proud to talk about. The European Space Agency has a spacecraft on the way and has been actually two probes in there called Beppe Colombo. And it's named in honor of the Italian engineer who did something amazing. He calculated how Mercury rotates and it does it three times for every two orbits around the sun. But this probe, this is bizarre. We know we have Earth auroras and the weakness of our magnetic field at the poles All these protons and highly charged particles zoom into that weak spot, causing us, you know, beautiful auroras or causation of auroras during different times. And we're going to get some more, hopefully, with this solar cycle. But here's the deal. On Mercury, we find out that this particular spacecraft and imaging 
has found out that this particular planet has X-ray auroras. What does that mean? It means that these auroras coming from this particular, you know, from the sun, Mercury strains. It's hotter than here in Phoenix on the, on the you know, light side. But on the dark side, it's super frozen, way down in hundreds of degrees below zero. So we find out that this spacecraft has detected these energetic particles. We see auroras high up in the space, you know, way up there. But on the planet Mercury, the auroras actually penetrate all the way down to the surface. And what happens is these high-energy electrons fluoresce. They fluoresce with minerals on the surface. So if you were there, you get to see these blue-colored or purple-colored auroras surrounding you. But the sad part is you wouldn't survive very long. So it would be best to watch it if you could see it from a spacecraft. <laughs> and Mercury, you, you won't see this with your eye. This is another revelation that's bizarre. For the longest time, we thought Mercury was just this dormant little planet. You can only see it in, you know, in the evening sky or on rare occasions. It transits the sun, Frank. It actually crosses. You know, you'll see it in silhouetted like an eclipse would be. But this tiny speck takes hours to cross the sun. But we find out that Mercury now has a tail, a sodium tail, that if you were to look in certain spectrum colors, you'd see Mercury in space. But it has this gigantic tail of sodium that stretches out, making it look like this magnificent comet. But it's 3,032 miles in diameter. Isn't it amazing the things that we're finding out in the, the last what, the last 50 years? The whole world has opened up our minds with these great technologies and spacecraft. And the universe, what, is just a... A delicious thing, if we can use that term, right? Uh, that That's for sure. But Mercury's not the only planet uh, that we're getting a glimpse of, right? I mean, uh, for people yeah. that are waiting for their <laughs> boyfriend to pop the question and waiting for that ring, maybe they won't have to wait for the boyfriend to get a ring. <laughs> there you go. Well, we find out that there's another planet. Great introduction. I like that. That is impressive. We find the original ring planet, the planet Saturn is now coming to a position called opposition. What's that? When an object rises at sunset, like a full moon does, we find this with planets. So Saturn will rise when the sun sets on the 27th. If you look into the southeast sky, not super bright, but definitely you'll notice it because of its yellowish color. And when you see this, more in a telescope, obviously, you'd need even a small telescope, you can see it. People who I've shown this to and people out there who know this stuff, they've seen it. If you haven't, some of these sidewalk astronomers like they used to do in San Francisco and all big cities, that's worth, you know, getting away from your cup of coffee or your adult beverage for a few minutes and going, wow, look at that. It's, it's a ring around an object that's about 900 million miles away. And it's probably one of the most amazing things to see. Have you ever seen it, Frank, in a, in a telescope? I don't. I, I don't think I have actually. I uh, I don't. Yes. But I've got my um, pair of binoculars that I'm hoping will uh, will suffice, and uh, we'll see we'll see where it goes. All right. A lot of people very e eager to talk with you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me begin with Jan in Manhattan. She's been holding a while. Hello, Jan. You're on with Doctor Sky. Oh, hi. Thank you. Dr. Sky. I'm going to ask you a question that I asked another yes. person on another station. And unfortunately, the, the screener didn't realize he was supposed to keep me on so I could hear the answer. And he cut me off right after I asked the question. So I heard about mm -hmm. 10, 10 words that the professor uh, answered. And uh, my radio wasn't working, so I, I missed the All whole right, answer. So what's so, your question? Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to ask, it's about the Big Bang, and I was very surprised when I, I heard a few, a few words of his answer. I had asked him, how long after the Big Bang do we start to see elements? 
like hydrogen, I guess, is first, and then we fuse, and we have the heavier elements, helium. I thought he's going to say a million years, a billion years. And when he started to say that 10 minutes, this surprised me, 10 minutes after the Big Bang, we had, he mentioned the three elements, helium, uh, hydrogen, helium, and lithium. Mm-hmm. And the rest of his sentence yes. was, because it was hot enough, and then they cut me off. So, <laughs> so I know this is unfair, but what do you think he was going to say? <laughs> well, I think he was correct, because I always use this analogy in many of our programs and classroom you know, programs that I do. When the universe was a trillionth of a second old, and I'm being a little bit conservative on that, that, that you know, timeline, uh-huh. the universe was uh-huh. small enough to hold in the palm of your hand like it would be a grapefruit. But realistically, right. nobody knows an exact answer, and I'm going to give this answer. Around 780,000 years after the original expansion, which I like to use because the Big Bang is, is a term as if we were here. You know, it's something that we weren't even around. So we'll use, not to split airs, an expansion. But it probably could have happened earlier where these different elements were formed. But that period of time, about 700, maybe 780,000 years, we started to see the soup, as we call it, in space, where the creation of not only stars, you need elements like hydrogen, helium, but hydrogen, the most abundant element in the universe, I believe was created somewhere within this period. And I'll give it that stretch of about 700 or 1,000 years, maybe not instantaneously. There had to be a big buildup. And that's pretty quick, don't you think, Jan, for a universe that's 13, allegedly 13.77 billion years young. Amazing story. But we'll, we'll keep you posted when we find out more. And I'm sure that the James Webb is going to help answer that. Great, uh, great question there, Jan. Uh, what about, uh, by the way, people are just tuning in. We're talking space uh, and all things space with Dr. Sky. You can call in with your own questions at 800-848-9222. Speaking of space, one of the marquee names in space these days is the world's richest man, quite possibly the uh, the uh, the solar system's richest man, Elon Musk, the head of SpaceX. What's going on with the upcoming SpaceX mission? What is the next SpaceX mission going to be? When is it going to be? Well, we just had one the other night, and I was alerted by a friend. And I try to follow this like any good person out there. A lot of people are, you know, tuned in even better than myself when they check these launches. There's so many of them. But we had a launch from Vandenberg of another 15 Starlink satellites, and it was actually visible. Technically, we had a monsoon cloud, so we couldn't see the rocket plume. But here's something interesting. It actually tore a hole in the ionosphere. This is this radiation or layer of the atmosphere, we say, way up there in space. It punched a hole through what we call the F layer, that is the rocket engines, with their water vapor. It punched a hole. So people who could see this, and there's images all over Google, and I mean, all over, all over the Internet and all over, you know, X now, I guess, for, you know, Twitter. But they have this image of seeing from California where they saw this, this big rocket plume looks like a jellyfish going up with the big rocket motor. And then it created, Frank, this incredible red-looking X-ray for just a short period of time. But next up, I think the biggest deal that we're talking about here is just the other day, SpaceX tested Booster 9. What's Booster 9? That's this gigantic rocket that they're going to put the Starship, you know, this version, number 25. That is the spacecraft and giant booster rocket that has the 33 Raptor engines. They lit these engines on the test stand without the, you know, without the spacecraft on top for 2.7 more seconds, and they shut it down quickly because four of the 33 engines didn't work properly. So Elon Musk and his genius and his crew was actually going to work on different versions of their Raptor engines. These Raptor engines, 
use two kind of kind of wild propulsion you know material liquid oxygen and liquid methane so what what elon musk and his team are doing is they've got version two there but they're actually going to work on a version three hopefully they'll get this rocket off the ground and nobody really knows he's he's so optimistic as always and that's good we probably would have seen if things went you know even better than they did today you would have probably seen the next launch of the starship probably as early as september we don't know but one of the big, you know, up and update for everybody listening, we talked about that there were so-called no FAA restrictions on the launching of the next big giant rocket, the Starship. Well, there are. The FAA had some concerns because of people filing lawsuits. You know what it did. It blasted apart the launch pad. Now they instituted a water deluge system, and they tested that at the same time they fired these Raptor engines. So it mitigated a lot of the destruction and turned it into a giant steam pot. So get set for probably one of the most amazing now to be the rock, the most powerful rocket in the world. They want to get this at least to do orbital. That is the payload on top. But that's amazing that they can even do that. And I'm told they're working on other booster rockets at this McGregor test facility. You got to build these boosters. And when they stack it together, Frank, that's like almost 400 feet tall, held in place by this giant gantry called Megazilla. And wow, this is uh, the stuff of science fiction that's in the reality world. It's amazing. Absolutely. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 800-848-9222. Roger is in Maryland. Hello, Roger. Hello there. Uh, While I was waiting, I did see a shooting star, and it was exactly due north. But but my question was, what constellations should I be looking at? Great question, Roger. Good morning to you. As I mentioned before, look to the northeast sky. And what you saw in the north, because these meteors could be all over the sky, but the origin point, if you were to take a pen and just dot it on a star chart, I'm looking at a star chart right now, and obviously you can find one, uh, even if you're a phone, do you have the capability on your phone to have one of those apps? Because that'll show you exactly what's the real view of the sky right now. But north is where you want to look. This is in the northeast, north and northeast. You're seeing the constellation called Perseus if you have clear skies. But I'm glad that you got to see one. I mean, was it fairly bright or describe it to the audience? Uh, it was bright and it lasted for like a quarter of a second, I think. Wow. There you go. Well, you're a witness, living testimony, right, Frank, of this amazing thing that's happening. And are Absolutely. you in a dark location or you're in a oh, city dwelling? You know, I, uh, I disconnected, uh, I disconnected, oh, Roger, so I can't, oh, wow. I can't ask, I, I well, can't follow one. up. That's what's great. There you go. Absolutely. That's great. Uh, w- a couple of things that I want to pick your brain on. 
we hear a lot about carbon dioxide, right? And we hear a lot about the potential harms uh, when it comes to carbon dioxide and climate. There was one report that removing too much carbon dioxide may not necessarily have a beneficial effect. What are you hearing about this? Well, this is interesting. I mean, the climate change people, well, if they're diehard you know, believers and don't want to hear anything different, again, my, my, my concern today is the argument, you know, the whole conversation of debate has sometimes been, uh, you know, dismissed. Let's hear from both sides. But removing too much CO2 from the atmosphere, according to this Korean scientific study, they did a study and did a simulation. Now, simulations can be right or wrong, but to the best of their ability, they state that they did this 140-year reduction with this giant computer model. Computers can be right or wrong. And they found out that if you took out this big percentage, let's say, or what they considered too much, I don't have the exact number, but the point is, if you took out too much CO2, the Earth would not recover in a period of, let's say, 200 years. And here's why. They looked at the different circulation, atmospheric circulation issues that we see from the equator. Some of these meteorological students would know what they are. They're called Hadley cells. And for the rest of us, they're circulating atmospheric currents that go from the equator to mid-latitudes. And in other areas of the Earth, they move. And what they were saying, the, the Korean study claims that these reductions could take, as I mentioned before, 200 years to return to normal after removing too much CO2 from the CO2 from the atmosphere. So we have this balance. Now we'll have to see if they can get more confirmation on these studies. But again, once again, all weather comes from the sun, as we've talked about so many times, and that doesn't dismiss concerns that people have about, you know, man-made pollution, what we do to the our Earth. Let's cherish Mother Earth. We all agree. But isn't that interesting? But they looked at this concept, how much I don't know. I mean, that's all, I'm always honest with you in the audience. But this study, I'm sure if people want to go onto the internet, they can look at a Korean scientific study on climate scientists who say that if you remove too much CO2 wow. from the atmosphere, it could cause long-term atmospheric circulation issues. And let's, let's go back to what's going on in the epicenter of hell, like here in Phoenix, as we call it, and other locations around the world that are suffering, not just us, to be selfish. Wow, 30-plus days, Frank, of 110-plus? I mean, this is insanity. And other areas of the world are experiencing this, too. What's the problem behind this? Scientists are saying that the change in the jet streams as it moves around the Earth, we're forming these big blobs of high-pressure systems that seemingly get blocked and right now here in Arizona, we're supposed to have a monsoon that comes up from Mexico. I was awakened at five o'clock in the morning just yesterday morning, or today for me here in Arizona, by the most vicious you know, monsoon storm I've ever seen. We need the water. But the point is, we're not getting anything. We haven't had rain here for like, what, months almost. So things are changing. And they're all, we're all trying to figure out, you know, what, what's the cause? What's really the cause of this? Too much CO2? Not enough? Solar radiation, you know, we, we talked about that with John on, on uh, Katz and Cosby just a few, a few weeks ago about the concept of are solar flares really the, the blame for the heat? And it's probably not the cause, but there's so many different layers and complications here in what we talk about, about climate and the, the effect that the sun has long term or short term. Just fascinating stuff. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, good morning, Frank and uh, Dr. Sky. Good morning. I was wondering, morning, how long would it take a meteorite 
that landed on Earth to cool to the point you could maybe handle it and retrieve it? Good question. Good question. It's all dependent on the size. Now, here we go. If you had an object that we called the Chelyabinsk meteor, which was 66 feet in diameter, lucky for us, well, maybe not lucky for us, but it actually exploded in the air, Robert, made chunks come down. Some landed in a lake. But the answer to that is kind of nebulous here. I would say I wouldn't touch it because it's still sizzling. And since most meteors are nickel iron, I mean, we have stony type meteors. But I guess from science fiction movies like The Blob, I guess the poor guy goes out in the field and he sees it hissing and he touches it. We all know what happened to him. But in a simple way, these meteors are, and and that's really interesting, Robert, that if you were to ever find one, like in the middle of the road, technically you could claim it. But there have been people, Frank and Robert, that have actually argued this and had lawsuits. There was one in El Paso where it landed just like almost on somebody's property, but also on the highway. And the whole thing went to court as to actually who really should take ownership of it. But your question is more about how long should I wait? I would just wait for a while because it's pretty hot. And it's also very valuable in many cases. A tiny gram of, let's say, Chelyabinsk, if you had one. I've seen them at, you know, these big gem and mineral shows that we have in Arizona and other places. You could pay for a little tiny gram of that material, maybe a couple of hundred dollars, And the rarest of all, Robert, are these alleged meteors that have actually come from the surface of Mars. Some believe that through explosions that happened billions of years ago, Mars ejected material out and it came to the Earth. So some think that that's uh, one of the primo, you know, meteors and collectibles. It's worth uh, an astronomical amount, but nothing more valuable than if you and I were to try to get a piece of the moon rocks from the Apollo, that's like, no, no, we're not going to get any of that. That's got a price tag that I guess what happened, some people were arrested. They were working at one of the uh, NASA facilities and the grad students decided that they would steal some of the moon rocks and conspired and whole FBI investigation got in there. But Robert, simply this, I don't think I'd touch it. I'd wait. But if you want to take possession of it, I guess you stand your ground and You'll become a wealthier man than than you are if you didn't have one. Steve, is there a chance that this uh, Perseid meteor shower that we're experiencing now and for the next few days could result in some meteors uh, being on Earth that people may encounter? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that case of the New Jersey home that uh, that experienced the the meteor arrival. Are we likely to see a lot more of that over over the next few days? Highly unlikely, and always to go to the point on this, this is interesting. Meteor showers, by and large, are so small, the particles are so small, but some could be a little bit larger, you know, maybe the size of a quarter, who knows, maybe the size of a fist. But it's really unlikely that we get solid meteorite material from these meteor showers that strike the ground. Now, I could be totally wrong, and nobody can predict this. But what's really interesting right now is, Dr. Avi Loeb of Harvard is on this big expedition, not to change to, you know, topics totally. Sure. But they, he claims that over by Java or Indonesia, where the exact location was, that something struck the ocean, and they uncovered particulate matter from this. That's the strangest stuff they've ever uncovered, though they didn't have permission, I understand, and they had a little legal hassle. But the point is, from science, these little spherical objects, little tiny millimeter-sized, little roundy-looking metal things, He's going to come out with a position paper that states pretty much he's kind of given what the cat out of the bag, that this material is interstellar. And it's not basically, I want to say it correctly because we don't know for sure. And he doesn't at this point, 
that this is something from a different star system and maybe not necessarily just meteor, but could be, and here we go again, something like, who knows, maybe some component of an extraterrestrial craft. I know that sounds kind of brash, but why not when we're trying to get the congressional hearings to give us information once they tell us we may have captured craft and biologics, but I'll have to go in a skiff, but I can't tell you folks. But the skiff will tell you where that is. That's bizarre. It was bizarre. I thought it was quite interesting, though. And uh, the fact that uh, such a high-ranking veteran intelligence officer would say what he was saying under oath, I really don't see any immediate problems with either his credibility or what possible motivation he would have to make something up like that. No, he's very good. I mean, he knows his stuff. And, and I, have you had him uh, on the No, I, I've been him? trying to get a hold of him, uh, but yeah. so far I have not had any luck. Yeah, but it's interesting. You're right, Frank. I mean, the, the two other individuals are also very credible, the two Navy pilots. But with his story, going back to David Crush, you know, he's emphatically stating yes to the question of, you know, has the U.S. government retrieved or captured or secured, you know, alien artifacts, meaning spacecraft. And he says yes. And he says he knows, and I think people need to watch this if they haven't seen it. It's a long replay, what, on YouTube. But I think, and I just watched it because we do programs out here. We're going to be talking today about a whole UFO subject centered around not to a large audience. But his testimony, I think I have it correct here. I just watched it. He states that he knows where these are, but he can't tell us. (laughs) we'll We'll have to go into a skiff. And in all my life, Frank, I've never been in a skiff. Have you? <laughs> no, no. Uh, but uh, I, I, I would. I'll go. It sounds like quite an adventure. All right, we're gonna take your. We're gonna take your questions in just a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Doctor Sky is here. This is the Infinite Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Magic is the moonlight. On this lover's June night As I see the moonlight Shining in your eyes Can't resist their power In this moonlit hour The great Dean Martin singing about the moonlight. We are talking about the moon and Anything else, any other celestial bodies that you're curious about with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He does a terrific podcast called the Dr. Sky Experience, which you can check out by going to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. That's redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, uh, any preview of what uh, what's coming up uh, this week or forthcoming on the Dr. Sky Experience? Well, I have another update. We call them Sky Update. We're up to number 25 since we started doing this with you. And thanks to John Katsimatidis and the entire staff there at uh, Talk Radio 77 WBC. 
But simply, people can just go there and we can have you, you obviously listen to a whole synopsis, a little more in depth than we do here on the show. So people can go there and find out more information about the sky. And then a lot of times I go back to some of the celebrity guests that I've had over the course of time from astronauts that have gone to the moon. And we leave this up, you know, a couple of surprises up there. And even people from stage and film, you know, we're just honored to have so many guests. Upcoming will be Carol Channing, some interviews I've had with her. She was so cute to talk about her view of the sky and heavens and things like that. So lots of information. And also, you know, since I've done shows called A Call to Rights over the years, American Exceptionalism, as John says so proudly with uh, Katz and Cosby, what do we stand for? Truth, justice, and the American way, because... I think that's so important to uh, share in our American traditions and American exceptionalism. So a little bit of a combination of of everything and some surprises. No, that's uh, terrific. People should absolutely check it out. I have to ask you about this. We were talking a little bit about uh, climate change, global warming uh, a little earlier. And by the way, yesterday was the, I believe it was the 50th anniversary, although it may have been the 48th, of the first time the word global warming appeared in print in an American publication. So it's a, a very timely discussion yeah. to have. It, you brought up the issue of carbon dioxide. There was a really interesting mm-hmm. uh, article that I read this week about the idea, a, a paper that's been published by a, an, a Johns Hopkins University astrophysicist, very well-respected guy, but he has this idea, apparently, to cool the planet, and it may sound silly, but apparently it's very serious, cool the planet by putting an umbrella on an asteroid and blocking out the sun. And apparently this particular Johns Hopkins Ph.D. actually thinks Mm -hmm. that this is a realistic strategy for reducing the temperature of this planet. What do you think of both the practicality of this and whether this is something we should be pursuing? Well, great story. And I think idealistically, it's a great idea. But, you know, mechanically, how to do this? Remember, launching payloads into space right now, we're serious about trying to get upwards of maybe 50 tons of matter into space. So this whole idea is building a solar umbrella that is tethered, get a little of this, like you mentioned, tethered to an asteroid. And the reason it's tethered is that if that solar sail were just there, it would be massive. I don't know the exact dimensions, but it would be pretty darn big. You'd have to put it at a certain position so that the actual object itself would do the shading as if you had an umbrella over your head to protect you from the sun. But the concept here would be to reduce solar radiation. And his thesis, in a summary, a real quick summary, says that if you could reduce the amount of sunlight hitting the Earth by 1.7%, you could reduce global temperatures and hopefully put us in a more positive light that we do not have to worry about this concept. Pro or con, whatever people believe about climate change or global warming, it's an interesting concept. But, Frank, I really think this is we're, – we're probably talking in all reality here. We're probably talking about maybe 50 or even 100 years. And why do I say that? I'm being positive but also honest. What asteroid would you be able to tether that wouldn't unto itself – start spiraling out of orbit right. or even move toward the Earth. So that's that's a dynamic there. But for those folks out of there that are serious capitalists and entrepreneurs, which I love, imagine what somebody, if Elon Musk is claimed to be the richest man on Earth, not in all of history, but for, let's, in this generation and time period, imagine if you could pull an asteroid close to the Earth and mine it, 
they're saying that that's going to make the first trillionaires with no problem at all. But the problem with this umbrella in closing is that how do you get the asteroid to cooperate so that it's not heading to us? In other words, if we were told tonight that asteroid XYZ, which would be enough to tether that space umbrella, is headed toward the Earth, how do you tell the asteroid in a nice way, in whatever language it understands, to slow down, stop so we can tether it and put it back on a leash like a dog would have with a harness? That's the problem. It's ideally a cool idea, but I think there has to be a lot more reality in the, in you know, making in, that out. Interesting. Let me try and squeeze in at least one or two more calls before we run out of time. Johnny is in uh, Sullivan. Hello, Johnny. Hey, Frank. Uh, thank you for having Dr. Sky on. Dr. Sky, you're fascinating. Anytime I listen to you on various shows, uh, it really is uh, amazing, the stuff that you talk about. I really uh, let Agreed. you know how fine Agreed. we really are. This topic well, about global you, warming. Yes. You're welcome, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, the CO2, I mean, I, I can't see where CO2 could be a problem. I mean, vegetation depends on CO2 to create photosynthesis, which they mm-hmm. in turn release oxygen, um, mm-hmm. and, and yes. w- which we depend upon. I really can't see how mm-hmm. the CO2 could be the issue as far as climate change. I believe myself moving up to Sullivan County, which is a rural area from New York City, what I keep witnessing is the constant overdevelopment, even up here, trees constantly mm-hmm. being cut down and whatnot. And I personally right. believe that that's a very big contributing factor to this this issue of climate Johnny, change. Johnny, we're, we're just, just about out of opinion. time, so let me give Steve an opportunity to respond in the last 40 seconds we have First here. First of all, Johnny, thank you very much. But the bottom line here is you're right. We're, we're terrorizing the, the earth by removing all the trees and asphalting it over. It's a very important component. Arbor Day says it all, right, Frank? Johnny, your points are well taken, and hope we can talk more in the future. Steve, it is always a treat to talk with you. I want to encourage folks to check out the Dr. Sky experience. They can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Let's do do this again in two weeks. Yes, we'll see you on August 23rd at 1 a.m. Thank you. Keep asking questions.